Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, pregnancy-focused chiropractor, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is an actor and producer who is seven years clean and sober, currently pregnant with her first child and is planning an unmedicated home birth. Virginia Rand DeWitt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I do want to amend, I've been in recovery for seven years, but I've been clean currently four and a half years. Oh, clean four and a half years. Okay. <laughs> Let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from originally? So my parents were two pretty traumatized people. So I was born in Louisiana, where my dad's from, but then grew up in Washington, D.C., where my very waspy mother's from. Her parents met at a brand new organization in the 50s called the CIA, oh. and <laughs> she proceeded to grow up in war zones, basically, when her dad was transferred to the State Department. And I think that she stops being able to recognize the difference between a foreign war zone and a domestic war zone. So that is a, I think, decent summary of my childhood. <laughs> okay. How did that translate into life for you? It was a lot of moving around, which is why the, where are you from question isn't easy. You know, I was born in Louisiana, but I left when I was three, moved to Virginia, moved to DC, moved to Rhode Island, moved to Maryland, and then when I was 13, I said, you know, enough of this, send me to boarding school. So two months after I turned 14, I shipped out to England and stayed there for five years. Why did so, you choose England? Uh, they spoke English and had a very lax drinking age. Okay. <laughs> was that your pitch to your parents? My pitch to my parents was that academically, you get to specialize at a younger age. So... I was good at the righty, cerebral, languagey stuff, but the math and science stuff, not so much. What did you want to specialize in? Well, I wanted to be an actor pretty early. I went to this school called Beedales that, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis went to and Lawrence Olivier went to. And very quickly, it became clear that my accent was going to be the subject of ridicule. <laughs> <laughs> so I quit and I started studying philosophy and I studied that for five years before getting the bug. And I was at Bristol University in the United Kingdom studying philosophy and I transferred to NYU where the wheels really started falling off in lower Manhattan. Well, you were in England. Part of your rationale was lax drinking age, mm -hmm. but you moved there at 14. Were you already drinking at 14? Yeah. When did you start? Um, the first time I got drunk and went to a nightclub was when I was 12 in Paris, because you could do stuff like that in Paris back in the day. I mean, I'm only 29, but it's interesting. The world is very different now than it was even when I was a teenager. And, you know, Me Too did not exist yet. So whatever happened was your fault. And the school I went to, I was also exposed to you know, the English elite, and there's a lot of drugs amongst rich teenagers. <laughs> Your drinking kind of opened up into a drug habit? Yeah. In the early 2000s, ketamine was pretty popular in London, and then eventually, you know, cocaine ecstasy. I know it's crazy because I look at a 15-year-old now, and I think that looks like a child. That doesn't look like someone who should be out you know, taking drugs and engaging in sexual activity. I mean, you mentioned Me Too wasn't around. Did you have Me Too issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
a lot of the early experiences, you know, gray areas of consent. And then as I got older and the drugs got darker, there were, you know, instances of, you know, saying outright, I'm scared and I want you to stop and being told to shut up and, you know, dealers expecting to get paid. For you, was there any road to getting out of that? Any effort at the time? The thing about alcoholism and addiction is that it's all denial. And the catch-22 of it is that continuing to engage in the drugs and alcohol helps you forget all the reasons that the drugs and alcohol aren't working. It also runs in my family. My dad's an alcoholic, a pretty scary, loud, sometimes physically aggressive alcoholic. So I didn't know what normal looks like. And his dad was an alcoholic. His dad died in a mysterious fire set in a Southern jail that ultimately killed him. And they don't know if he said it or if it was foul play. So yeah, a lot of darkness around that. My brother and sister have also struggled with substance abuse. So it's a family think, tradition. Yeah, it's family tradition. <laughs> yeah. And my mom's brother was a heroin addict at one point there father who was the ambassador of Thailand at the time had to come and drag him out of a Thai prison with his diplomatic immunity for heroin possession when he was a teenager. So how do you eventually get out of it? When I was 21, I got 86 from a bar in the nicest way. And the bartender said, honey, I've been doing this a long time. And I know when someone's pretending to have fun and you're clearly miserable and you should go home. And the wheels had been really falling off for a while. I'd been living such a double life because, you know, I'm still vain and also still ambitious. So I had, you know, my studies at NYU. I interned at the Colbert Report. I did a summer internship in D.C. on Capitol Hill. I interned at the mayor's office and I was always able to hide the external behavior. And eventually I couldn't. So having a stranger call me out was such a blessing. And I went to rehab a few days later and little did I know I wouldn't be allowed back to New York City and that no one would buy me a plane ticket. And that's how I ended up here in sunny Los Angeles. Oh, so I your rehab was in California? A, the rehab was in Utah, but to get out of rehab, I had to agree to go to a sober living program. And that's what brought me here. And then my driver's license expired. So I ended up with a California license. And it was the first time my ID ever matched up with where I was living. <laughs> oh, the one piece I don't understand is why you couldn't get back to New York. Oh, my mother who was paying for the rehab was like, I'm not buying you a plane ticket back to New York. You can go to sober living in California or you can stay in rehab. Okay. So was your mother also a victim to alcohol and drugs or is she the one? You know, she's what you call a good old fashioned codependent. And so her craziness, you know, and poor thing, God bless her. She has so much guilt around this, but the craziness of my dad was always being matched by her denial. And, you know, coming also from a family like that, where you always put on a brave face and you don't address what's going on. I mean, you know, her parents were military intelligence. She had U.S. military level of being able to deny what was really happening. And her mother also later joined like Est and got into a whole bunch of Eastern stuff. So she was very much of the, you know, just accept what's happening. Just accept what's happening. Don't be a victim. Which 
isn't great mentality for parenting. We can get into that now, but she now understands that children cannot regulate their emotional responses. But at the time, her go-to to dealing with being unhappy or having upset feelings was like, you know, you really get to choose your own experience, which uh, I can't imagine saying to a seven-year-old at this point, but... <laughs> A traumatized seven-year-old. We also, you know, she also lived before pop psychology being readily available on Instagram. So she didn't understand that telling any traumatized person that they were choosing their own experience was a big no-no. Was rehab and sober living facility, were they effective for you? For a couple years, yeah. Maybe even just out of spite. (laughs) The thing is that sobriety was actually fun for me at first. I spent my first few years in California hanging around a bunch of like graffiti artists and old punk rockers, which I think raised the eyebrows of my waspy family back east. But the principle of sobriety that I have come across is that honesty and feeling connected to just something that's bigger than you, you know, it can be God, it can be the universe, it can be the sense of humanity that you relate to, but Your life can't just be about you. And, you know, I got into an isolating relationship, started to feel too effing special to relate to anyone else. And a joint came my way once and I started smoking it. And I smoked pot for a while because pot was never my thing. And green and sober is just so popular here in California. So that did eventually lead me back to drinking, which very quickly led me back to drugs. And I got sober... A second time, no rehab, no sober living, just going into what we call the runes. What does Uh, that mean? 12-step program. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, you know, I don't represent that community at all. I can just say that they helped me, as is standard with an anonymous program. But the thing that got me sober again, like, it wasn't any of the dark, horrible things. Like, a lot of dark, horrible things happen. You know, the first time it was a stranger being compassionate. And the second time it was a stranger being compassionate. I was hired as an actor on a job and I showed up late and still drunk. And apparently I knew my lines, but I was saying them in an English accent. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Which is very much my MO as soon as I started drinking. And one of the producers had to pull me aside and say, I can't put you on camera like this. I'm going to send you home. And I know you used to be sober and... I think you should do that again because you're probably better than this. And I said, yeah, I am. So I went back the next day and I've been sober ever since. And I am quite glad for that experience because, you know, I spent my 22nd birthday in rehab. I was so young and I'm sure somewhere down the line when the stakes were much higher, I would have wondered, you know, was I just depressed? Was it because my childhood was traumatic? Like, you know, maybe I can give this another shot. So I'm glad I did it when I was 24. And the damage I caused, I mean, I can't say it didn't affect other people because that's such a common excuse for alcoholism and addiction to say, well, what I'm doing is only hurting me. And it's not true. But I didn't have anyone relying on me the way I will in the next two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Things are changing for you big time. Do you have any specific episodic regrets? You know, there are some things that happened that I probably would be better off without having happened. But 
we say that we do not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Like what happened, happened. And I understand that it's all symptomatic of this spiritual psychological ism that I have that my dad had and his dad had. And, you know, I was able to stop it and I have no desire to drink. And my partner who was there when I came back, (laughs) who saw me, you know, still drunk when I was ready to get sober again, which is incredibly humbling moments. And he's been clean for 21 years. Well, together you are due to have a baby. Yeah. Um, You're in the zone for delivery could happen any moment. Let's take a little break and find out how you guys met and how the relationship developed. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the podcast. We are talking to Virginia Rand DeWitt. Okay, Virginia, a dark chapter for you that you put behind yourself once and then again a few years later and then you said you met your partner how'd you guys meet well we'd known each other in my previous sobriety and he is older and has been sober a lot more time and was not interested in a younger woman (laughs) so he was you know polite at arm's length and i didn't know too much about him. He has this really wild job and streetwear and music merchandise and visual arts and painting. And I don't know anything about fashion. So, you know, basically he happened to be at the meeting I was at when I came back and was like, whoa, okay, you definitely have what I have. You know, just saw like the raw darkness in my eyes and was like, oh yeah, she's for sure like me. And we didn't really become friends. We were just friendly. And then when I had almost two years sober, I did this low residency master's through NYU in creative writing because being an actor in LA waiting around for other people's nightmare. So I went to grad school (laughs) and the program actually ran out of their campus in Paris. So I was in Paris doing my final workshop and senior presentation and He was there for something I'd never heard of called Men's Fashion Week. 
And we started hanging out and, oh God, it's so cringe because it's Paris, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, after walking around for a while, we were like, oh no, we're totally screwed, aren't we? (laughs) No coming back from this. And then the pandemic hit, which kind of accelerated things. So by the time the pandemic hit, you guys were already a thing? It was, uh, you know, we were sniffing each other out. You know, we had very fast feelings very quickly. There were, you know, various complications I don't want to get into. My age being 20 years younger than him, I think also made him pause. And he wanted to make sure that he wasn't following an old pattern of jumping into something that wasn't going to be sustainable. And so as frustrated as I was at the time, I appreciate that he broke his 30-something year pattern of relationships and took things slowly and did some work on himself. But then, you know, once things really took off, you know, we were discussing marriage and a baby. And it was, I guess, over a year into our relationship, I booked a job for three weeks in Montana. And we hadn't been apart for that long. And of course, we thought he'd be able to visit, which was so naive because there was still a lot of COVID going around. And when I came back, we started traveling together because the world had opened up. Um, I met his parents. We got along great. And it was at his parents' house that he said, where do you see us in five years? Like, I think we're probably going to end up married. And I said, okay, cool. (laughs) He said, this isn't a proposal. I'm going to get down on one knee and all that. And then it was last summer. Sounds like a little pre-proposal. It was, you know, he kept threatening to get down on one knee. (laughs) And, but also a pre-acceptance. Yeah. I think the whole popping the question out of nowhere is really romantic and there's something prudent and You know, also in today's age where relationships can look so different from the traditional mold, I think it is important to talk to your partner about what their opinion is on marriage and kids, maybe sooner rather than later. Oh, so were you also talking about kids at that point? Um, When we first had the conversation of this is going to be a serious relationship, like we're together, you know, there's no one else. This is what it is. He goes, I would be surprised if we had a baby. I was like, bro, I've been your official girlfriend for like 10 minutes. (laughs) Um, But he loves kids and he'd always wanted them. And it was just one of those things that like, it just never lined up. He actually has a history of childcare back in the early 90s when he was still strung out. He was Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's nanny up in Seattle. He was a manny. So he was their primary caregiver, which gives me relief because he's changed a lot of diapers, (laughs) you know, and it was, you know, bananas because he was so young and so out of it. But even in that state, he was able to keep a child alive. Yeah. I mean, now you're four years sober. Is it something I have no idea because uh, I don't have experience with it at all, but is it something that is still out there beneath the surface that you have to think about and fight off? Um, I wouldn't say that the urge to drink or use drugs is something that's actively in my conscious. I think of addiction as being kind of an extreme version of the human condition, which is we all deal with obsessive thinking that we want to quiet. And that, in my understanding, is really the root of it, that my mind can get very loud and very scary. And there's a whole lot of external reasons for that. I'm sure some of it is also in my nature, other than like the weird PTSD stuff. 
so the solution to quiet all that down was drinking and using drugs. So you take that away and I still have a loud, obsessive, scary mind with cravings and aversions as the Buddhists talk about. Some people become workaholics or sex addicts or get really into shopping or weird hobbies or just compartmentalize and bottle everything until they have a midlife crisis. My thing is if I let it get out of hand, you know, there's probably a bottle or a bag in my future. So it's not so much making sure that I don't want to drink again. It's to make sure that my mind stays quiet and healthy before those thoughts even arise. What kind of things do you do on a regular basis to keep your mind quieter and healthier? Um, you know, we talk about conscious contact and that can take so many forms, be it working with other people who've struggled or are struggling. Isolation is notoriously a big aspect of having a drinking or drug problem. And so being able to find commonality with other people, because, you know, even addressing like the first part of my story, like I was still a little shit. Like I thought I was too special and, you know, this thing that works for you guys isn't going to work for me because I've had all these, you know, unique experiences and I had to cut it out. I had to cut out this whole, I'm different. Did and of you, course you... I've learned that I am different and special, but it's not for all the things that make me tragic. And I'm so grateful for that because I think we live in a society today where we're really pushed to use our tragedies as commodity. Truth to that. Mm-hmm. Sadly. You mentioned earlier that part of sobriety is attaching yourself to something bigger than you. What is that for you? Um, I really had an aversion to the word God when I came in. You know, I'd studied philosophy and thought I might even make my career arguing for materialism and against dualism. But I realized there was a sort of vanity in that, like looking around, seeing human intellect, human consciousness and saying, well, that's it. And I'm no longer averse to the word God because I just changed my definition of it. And I thought there was something really arrogant in being a white girl in America who grew up in the Episcopalian church. And all of a sudden I know what God means for everyone ever across the world. And when I act as if I am a part of more, my life is better. You know, I don't sneer so much as people who have, you know, more of the sky daddy type of God. You know, I'm still skeptical of the effect that Christianity can have in this country. But again, like that's getting into organized religion. And I think when you get too far into that, you can get away from spirituality and just understanding that, you know, my body and my brain and my being here is incredible. And these cells in my body have been here for millions of years and will continue to be here way after the earth has turned to dust. I can't deny that I'm a part of something. And, you know, I grew up idolizing all of these skeptics and atheists, but even George Carlin, one of the most anti-religious of them all would say, you know, there is the great electron, like there is some kind of, you know, interdimensional thing you know, even having this experience of like growing a baby in my body, like, how did I know how to do that? You know? And like, I looked into Buddhist philosophy. I looked into Jewish theology, which I also really enjoyed. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, I always felt like the biggest difference between Christianity and Judaism, other than the whole Jesus thing, is that, you know, very generally, and I don't want to offend any Christians, but I find in America, there's this Christian idea of like, well, God's going to do this, or God's going to do that, and God's going to smite you, and I know what God's going to do. And Jews are like, I don't know what God's going to do. God's done all sorts of crazy shit. <laughs> Who am I to say what God's going to do? I remember reading that in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also the spelling is quite different, Christianity and Judaism. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, I think the bigger religions all have a lot in common. And I think that individuals, spirituals also have a lot of commonality with the organized religions, but also some differences. And, you know, spirituality can be what you want it to be, what you make of it. I always picture this world as a temporary world and the world to come is a more permanent world. And it's a big mountain to climb while you're here. And there's a lot of different paths to the top. And so I respect people finding their path and taking it. it doesn't have to be my path. As they say, there's many roads lead to Rome. Yes, but Rome. only a few airlines nonstop. <laughs> I found out from Los Angeles. Okay, let's take another little break. Now that you're having a kid, things are changing. I'd love to know what your plans are for birth. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking to Virginia Rand DeWitt. And as we mentioned, you're due any minute now. And you and your partner, after your pre-proposal and pre-acceptance, must have chosen to make things official. We got married during a pandemic while I was pregnant. Do not recommend. Which but part? Getting married in the pandemic whilst pregnant. One or the other, I think is fine. But the combination of two, the, comp the magnification, wait, what is that wedding like? It basically meant there was a lot of people we couldn't invite and a lot of people were hurt. And it was like, what do you want me to do? Like I'm five months pregnant and Omicron is out there. What kind of wedding did you have? We got married in an old theater in West Adams that had a big outdoor area for eating so that people could be outside and kind of distanced. I'm sort of hurt that I wasn't invited. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, was the baby planned? Yeah. Super planned. You know, we talked about it last summer and I went off birth control and after my cycle regulated, it was this very like feral cave woman response to once I decided I wanted to be pregnant. It was like, it must happen. It only took three cycles. And it felt like forever. And like the last menstrual cycle I had, I remember like lying in bed with my partner and we were just, you know, so sad. So it really made me admire the strength of women who try for like an actual long time. It's a very difficult roller coaster. Yeah. When you were finally pregnant, did you know before testing? Um, well, I was so convinced the cycle before that I was pregnant that. I really tried to be kind of like loose. I don't know the answer, like, you know, will of God, will of the universe. We did notice immediately <laughs> that my boobs were really big. We were like, oh, that's interesting. You both noticed. We both noticed. Maybe he noticed before I did, but. <laughs> oh. um, Here's a different vantage point. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'd been tracking my ovulation on the little pea sticks and. All of a sudden, 
I know I said I was bad at maths earlier, but all of a sudden I got really good at math. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I told myself not to test the first day, but I did. And the line was so faint that I called like my one sciencey friend and was like, what does this mean? And she said, well, there's pretty much no way you can have a false positive. Like a line is a line. Like if that's stuff's in your pee, it's the sciencey term for human growth hormone, whatever it is, CG, I don't know. Yeah, baby, CG. Yeah, you know, it's there. And I had to get my hair cut. So I went to cut my hair and then I got one of those digital tests that just said pregnant or not pregnant. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this rather than just a little faint line. And if it says pregnant, then I'll tell my partner. And, and it said pregnant. But of course, I was at a friend's house in Venice. We live in Silver Lake. So I immediately got in my car and started driving home and hit the worst traffic. Boy. <laughs> How did you tell him? I just put the test in his hand and started crying. Oh, that says it all. <laughs> like a happy crying. And he was so excited. And then he brought up again, you know, we'd been planning on getting married. But when we were trying to get pregnant, we felt very, you know, lackadaisical about it. But as soon as we found out, I was pregnant all of a sudden for us, for whatever reason, we wanted to be married, which I would never suggest for anyone else. I don't know why, you know, it all of a sudden became so important. So that was the other aspect of the pandemic pregnant wedding was that it was planned in like two months. Yeah. I mean, were you lackadaisical partially because you're waiting for the pandemic to clear up? Maybe. And, you know, before we actually knew I was pregnant, like it just didn't seem like it was necessary to be married and, you know, having a kid out of wedlock is like not even really a discussion anymore. It's uh, still a word. I know. Like it's so archaic, but hmm. for whatever reason, you know, we wanted to be, you know, bonded together for life. You know, it felt important. So we did it. How would you characterize the three trimesters in a nutshell? First trimester was like, being hungover or carsick. The second trimester is totally fervent. Get done now. You know, I got married in my second trimester and then we went to Mexico and then we went to Berlin because he had an art show. And then you came to Berlin. And then I came to Berlin. For some chiropractic care. (laughs) For some chiropractic care. Way insert that in there. And then we went to Japan and flew back from Japan the last day that I could have traveled, like the last day of my second trimester. So it was just pure madness. And then third trimester is, you know, I'm filled groin to gills with the whole entire baby. And nesting is real. All of a sudden, having coasters seemed really important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of like the funny little blessings of being domesticated after, you know, being like a cocaine addict who'd stay up for days at a time is it's so quaint to all of a sudden love having drawers that close and in-house laundry and even being a little bit of a germaphobe it's so different on the other side and you know we watch a movie and we go to bed at 10 30 p.m it's wonderful uh the finer things yeah you have a birth plan yeah You've ditched the hospital for your plan A. Home birth. Home birth. Yeah. So I'd always been kind of interested in that. You know, my mom also didn't have a great time 
with us. She got really peer pressured into the epidural. It was Louisiana in the 90s. And I'd also just felt like I've worked so hard to feel present in my body. You know, that was the real challenge with me being sober as a young woman was it felt really scary and unsafe. Like the first time I tried meditating, I had a panic attack, you know, because I'd just always been on guard ever since I was a little kid. And there was a frightening alcoholic man screaming and slamming doors, you know, and then of course, all of my unfortunate moments where I had, you know, a lot of bad judgment and were around a lot of really stupid and selfish boys, men, whatever you call them, you know, in order to be able to stay sober, I had to deal with all of that and learn how to be in my body and feel safe and comfortable in it. And it was hard. And it took a lot of weird, intense self-reflection and patience and, you know, diving through layers of the psyche. And so for something as important as birthing a child, like I didn't want to I mean, I don't want to suggest that, you know, if you do end up taking medication that you're not present for it, you know, birth is birth and it's always beautiful and magical. But for my experience, I just really want to at least try to not escape my body whatsoever. I spent so long trying to do that. You want to feel the physical intensity. Yeah. I say that now. Let's check in in a few weeks. But Well, sure. You never know how it's going to go till you get there. But your desire at this moment, it sounds like you're saying, you know, it's intense. You know that there's probably pain involved yeah. and other intense feelings physically and emotionally. And at this moment, you don't want to numb yourself to them. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, you want to do home birth? Like, I didn't know you were that person, you know, <laughs> but you were rational. But yeah, I want to be there for it. One would ask, why not unmedicated at a hospital? Um, the midwives we liked don't really do that. And, you know, it's August in LA. If I can avoid driving through MacArthur Park in the middle of summer, because we're registered at Good Samaritan as a backup. Oh, uh, uh, so you have a backup hospital in case you decide oh, you don't need to go. Definitely. And I've been seeing an obgyne along with the midwives. But like, I've just also known, like, I remember finding out that my friend Gina Miller was born at home. And this was one of my friends in the UK. And it was the craziest thing I've ever heard. You know, it was like finding out that her parents still drove a horse and carriage, like what people still do that. <laughs> and there was just something really well adjusted about her as a person. And I think coming into the world at home, in the same room where you were created, you know, out of the love between two people, you know, there's something really beautiful in that. I think I, that if you're playing on a hospital birth, you might as well at least conceive in the hospital as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also know it's not very original to dislike hospitals, but, you know, I don't like the smells and hospitals are such a peculiar place. They're like airports. There's always people coming and, and leaving, and, you know, even between the worlds, like there's people dying, there's people arriving. And um, yeah, that's true. And the yeah. snacks are really expensive, just like an airport. Oh, I mean, honestly, being able to eat the food at my own house was a big reason. Who's coming to your birth? Uh, just my husband's invited. Um, no, he wants to be there. He's really present with me and present for this. So it's just him, Shelly and Shawnee, the midwives, who are incredible. 
you know, they've been doing this for you know, before I've, I was born. Yeah, since before my husband was born, you know, and he's in his late 40s. So I have a lot of faith in them. And then if she can make it on time from the East Coast, my mom, because a lot of, you know, my reasoning was also, I think that this is something she wished that she'd done. And she has a lot of remorse about my childhood, which I hope that she heals because I understand that she was just doing what she thought would empower us. And, you know, she just didn't know better. And I think that she's really present in my life today and she's really looking forward to being a grandparent. This is her first grandchild. Oh, that's sweet. I think parenting, even for me, I have like essentially four teenagers is a heck of a lot easier in retrospect. And in the moment, everybody wants to do the best for their kids. It's just, you know, some people are better or worse at it. Some people get lucky. Some people have more clarity in the moment or ask the right questions from other people. And there's not always a right or wrong in your parenting style. So you could look back easily and say, oh, I should have done this, or I would have liked to have done that. But, you know, we do the best we can and you turned out fantastic. So I hope looks at you and feels very proud. Yeah. You know, don't we do that in life? And yeah, there does also seem to be something spiritually relevant about having the person who birthed you witnessing your birth. Yeah. Maternal generational connection. You were at her birth. I was. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, that I remember also really tripping me out, finding out that as our first cells were in our mothers when they were in their mothers. Yeah. We're born with all of our eggs already inside of us. You are. That was so crazy because I never met my grandmother. She died in the 80s when my mom was in college. And um, she seemed like a real trip. Like I said, she worked for the CIA. And then she and my grandfather divorced because she got into that, you know, 70s, 80s, new age spirituality, you know, for better or for worse and died. I remember she was living at an ashram at the time. And it was a bit of a controversy because you're not allowed to be born or die at an ashram. That is not the place for that sort of inner world travel. <laughs> and, you know, and so she had to leave. So. Well, it sounds like a, you're very close and you have a solid plan for your birth, starting with a plan A, an unmedicated home birth surrounded by spiritual midwives and also your partner and maybe your mom. Yeah. And you also have a flowchart of backup plans in case you want to or need to have some of the more modern interventions. It sounds very level-headed, and I wish you the greatest of luck for a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also really excited to not be 45 pounds heavier. <laughs> I'm grateful for everything you shared today and also that you're going to come back and share your birth story with us. Next time we hear you, you'll be holding a little baby in your arms. Between now and then, if we're curious, where can we find you online? Instagram, I'm virginia.range.dewitt. And that's it. I'm not really on Twitter or anywhere else. Me so. either. Instagram's my jam. I will see you at virginia.rand.dewitt, and I'll be following along from at yeah. Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. Wait till you hear this podcast I did with my friend Virginia. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. At home, if you'd like to check it out, we have an amazing blog now at informedpregnancy.com. You can check it out right there at informedpregnancy.com.